0: In 2001, Elon Musk was involved in a nonprofit called the Mars Society. He was interested in raising plants in a growth chamber on the surface of Mars. It was a crazy idea, but that had not stopped him before. The problem was, he needed a rocket to carry the payload to Mars. He began looking, where any reasonable person would look, to Russia. For refurbished, intercontinental ballistic missiles. The Russians viewed Musk as a space novice and didn't take him seriously. They were so insulted by his confidence and bravado that one Russian chief engineer spat on him. After returning to Russia on another attempt to purchase an ICBM, he was offered a rocket for $8 million. Musk decided the Russians were not serious about doing business with him. He stormed out of the meeting. On the flight home, his team was having a drink to celebrate the fact they made it out of Russia, but Musk was busy typing on his computer. Suddenly, he looked up and said, I think we can build this rocket ourselves. It was then he decided he would not be subject to outside sources. He would have control of his product through vertical integration. He started a company known as SpaceX, and he built his own rockets. It was such a risky endeavor, He wouldn't even let his friends invest in the company because he said everyone would lose their money. He put $100 million of his own money on the line. Musk could not attract engineers with the right expertise to this project because of the risks involved. He said that there was no point in hiring bad engineers, so he became the chief engineer, even though he only had bachelor's degrees in economics and physics. After three failed launches, they were almost out of money and materials. For the final launch that would determine success or failure, they were using scraps and simple physics in hopes this would work. Their fourth try was a success. Since that time, SpaceX has had 395 successful launches. Elon Musk believed he could do this better than anyone. He used all of his money, time and intelligence to build an amazing company He has built some of the most successful businesses in the world that actually solve problems. And he has done it by simply caring more than anyone else about his own business. The King's Hall exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world.
1: Well, welcome back to the King's Hall podcast. I'm Brian Sauve. And here again, as usual, with Dan Burkholder and Eric Kahn. How are you guys doing today? Doing fabulous.
2: Great. Love hearing the uh, Elon Musk stories. Oh, that guy is yes. just brilliant.
1: He's yes,
2: nuts. he is. The guy's
0: crazy. Uh, unreal. I was telling Eric beforehand, like, every time that I'm reading about Elon Musk and he's going to make a decision, I would make the opposite one. Right. <laughs> and he is the wealthiest
1: African-American, African-American
0: in the world.
1: He is indeed. Actually, Dan. he's just the wealthiest man in the world. That, that, that's true. That's true. That's a good. That's a good point. Well, as you all know, in this season of the King's Hall podcast, we're essentially asking how can we build this cathedral of the of the next Christendom, and we've been going through and critiquing various uh, shanty towns of models like mega churchianity, a big fast and famous that are on our job site that we need to clear so we can send this cathedral up to the sky, this great cathedral of Christendom. Last week, we talked about theological minimalism, cultural syncretism, and antinomianism. This three-pronged demon that we're going to need to exercise from our job site. Wow, that that's really mixing the metaphors there <laughs> at this point if we are going to build our cathedral here. And our thesis was that uh, essentially this model of christianity theological minimalism cultural syncretism this kind of christianity that responded to the assaults of modernism and liberalism with basically retreat and then a reduction of the christian faith to its handful of core doctrines and and even though this wasn't intentional in the last episode we showed that this reduction in order to defend the faith ended up becoming a you know a permanent feature of lots of the christianity that came out of this point and so Rather than having a full-orbed Christianity that really gave Christians a model for how to be Christians in every single corner of their life, they ended up giving Christians a reduced, reductionistic, minimalistic picture of the faith. And so the reason that we shared that story about Elon Musk at the beginning is because You know, as you're looking at some of the things that he's done, and we're not like Elon Musk fanboys. I'm sure someone's going to write us in and be like, Elon Musk is not a Christian. I kind of like him. Elon Musk is federal vision. (laughs) He's federal (laughs) (laughs) vision. Elon (laughs) Musk is federal (laughs) vision. Oh, my word. Okay. Okay. Wow, wouldn't that be a turn of events? (laughs) It really would. Surprise. (laughs) No, the reason we shared that is because one of the things that really marks everything that he puts his hand to is that here's a guy you could say who is obsessively cared about every aspect of his companies, his ideas, the products that they make. He's a guy who's obsessed with vertical integration. So you see the way that, for example, Tesla, has gone about their manufacturing. They said, we're going to make an electric car. And most people that do this sort of thing, they say, okay, well, we'll, we'll manufacture certain components ourselves, the frame of the car, et cetera. We'll assemble it, but we're going to buy parts. From, we're going to buy batteries from Samsung and we're going to buy, you know, doors from this company. And Elon Musk is like, no, you know what we're going to do? We're actually going to invent new battery technology and then start the biggest battery manufacturing company in the entire world. So he's he's wanting to start a car and along the way, an electric car, and along the way, he creates this, the greatest battery company in the history of mankind, basically. And, and you can look at everything the guy's done, and this sort of obsessive care marks all of it. So, I mean, he, I think Elon Musk is a good example of the opposite of our cold open last week, of the landed gentry who slowly crippled those great British estates by selling off land until they just had this magnificent house on a little island of land surrounded by property that no longer was owned by them and they couldn't support the land anymore. Elon Musk is the opposite. He would have been out. If if he was in charge of that estate, he would have known every square inch. He would have been out patrolling the borders, defending his land, seeing how he could buy more. Like He's a guy who just cared about it to the edges. And the model of Christianity that we believe must be assembled in place of theological minimalism And all of the results, antinomianism and cultural syncretism, is a model of Christianity that we're calling theological maximalism, legacy-minded cultural maximalism, and those two things swimming in this great river of reformed Catholicity. So we're rejecting theological minimalism and its attendant cultural syncretism. And in place of that on our job site, we'd like to build a model of Christianity. We believe this model of Christianity must be built to see the new Christendom Cathedral go up. And it is a model of Christianity that loves the scriptures to the edges, that, that, that demonstrates and teaches that Christians should be in the business of applying all of scripture to all of life, the whole of scripture to the whole domain of human existence with the expectation that this will actually work, that as we do this, it will actually bear fruit in every domain and that building the next Christendom will take men and women marked by this totalizing kind of thinking, men and women who take their faith out to the edges of life, who are interested in the world that God made and ready to roll up their sleeves and get to work in taming wilds, building cathedrals, starting businesses, raising families, being human beings who are Christian in every aspect of their humanity. And so first... Let's start to do some definition work and get into this first big heading of today's show, which is theological maximalism. We're saying that our Christianity should be able to, to have a label on it that's marked theological maximalism. So Eric, what do we mean by that? Why don't you take the reins here and, and lead us through this topic?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that I did, because um, we've used that term quite a bit actually yeah. in this show, it made me kind of wonder where that came from. So I don't know if actually you know where you first got the term, but I looked it up on Google and um, there's actually some like very specific things about the doctrine of God that like, there's a theological maximal argument. Um, That's that's not what we're talking about. Nope. I, I here's, here's where I got it. I made it up. I made it up. (laughs) So this one comes from the, the mind of Brian. So so Brian, you'll have to help me with this one. <laughs> the life of Brian. Now we got the mind of Brian. Oh boy, there's oh. a lot of Brian in this show. Dan's oh. shaking his head. He's he's disappointed. There's a lot of Brian in, in life, this room. Dan. That's he, the way it he's, is. He's already got so much Brian in his life. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and define theological maximalism. And uh, Brian, you can tell me if this is what uh, you were thinking when you made it up. I I, I, <laughs> I I think we're at least close. Hopefully. Um. So first of all, when we use the term theological maximalism. We are referring to the process of studying, understanding, and applying everything the scripture teaches to every sphere of life and really believing that Christ is Lord over all of it. So I, I, I got to know, first of all, Brian, how'd I do? Not only did you nail it, you
1: improved on it. Well, that's, I mean, that's winning. You, when they write the Wikipedia article about it, they're <laughs> going to say, Eric Kahn's definition. Of theological maximalism.
0: So so coming from the mind of Brian, I remember when this term was coined, yeah. uh, I mean, for our use, obviously it's existed before. Yeah. This is actually, so what we're talking about, building the new Christendom, this isn't in the ether, like some sort of ideal that doesn't exist. What we're doing in this podcast is explaining to you what we're trying to do in our own church. Yeah. So these terms, theological and cultural maximalism, legacy, and um, Reformed Catholicity, those things are actually our values as a church. So when I sat down with Brian and I'm like, what's the mission, vision, values for our church? What do we hope to produce? What is like built into the DNA of who we are? And he's like, oh yeah, theological maximalism. Theological maximalism, meaning in contrast to theological minimalism, instead of saying like, what's the the reduction of Christianity. And what's the to least essence, someone would need to know to be a Christian. Right. It's like, what, what should you know about God to every, like, like Elon Musk and his business. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, to the, to the ed, very edges. What is God like? What does he think? How does he think? What does he think is important? What about his character? What about good and evil and the true and the beautiful? Like that's theological maximalism is knowing God deeply and having a robust, Christianity, where, where, you know, different viewpoints and you take a stand essentially on those viewpoints.
2: Yeah. I think that's great. Um, and one of the things we've obviously talked about it, you guys have talked about it early in the show, but I I do want to contrast this just a succinct definition now of theological minimalism, uh, which is the mistaken tendency to isolate certain key doctrines to the exclusion of all others. So not necessarily bad that we say, Hey, this is a really central thing, but it is bad when you say this is central and the other things aren't. That's right. So, and then what happens to these other things? We relegate them to the non-central elements. Again, we categorize them as unimportant. One of the things, gentlemen, as I was thinking about this, doing a lot of reading, happened to be reading Ken Gentry. We'll unpack that in just a moment. Um, he shall have dominions. So this is on post-mill theology. Uh, but he was talking about eschatology. And he said the problem, he was talking about this very thing of reducing it to just a core and then saying, of course, eschatology is not important. Yeah. Um, The issue, though, that he brought up is he said reformed theology in its nature is comprehensive. So when we say that we're reformed, fundamental to the history of reformed theology and doctrine, dogma, was this understanding that we want to know everything about all of history, all of Christ, all of life, um, soteriology, anthropology, Christology, you name it. We want to know about all of it. And and the reason that we have a system like reformed theology is because it's an attempt to understand all of it comprehensively. Yes. So, so the word I would use is comprehensive.
1: One of the best products that I've purchased in the last year, honestly, the last few years, was an heirloom quality chessboard from Boniface Woodworking. Actually, a friend of mine here in Ogden, Utah, and he makes high quality, really heirloom quality woodcraft for the new Christendom. If you're looking for anything from a small project like kids' wooden toys to a a, a chessboard of any size up to competition size, uh, inlaid chessboard tables, dining tables, benches, shaker furniture, a pulpit for your church, whatever you're looking for, Boniface Woodworking can take care of it for you in a way that you know that your dollars are going to support Christian Company and Christian family. Uh, head to bonifacewoodworking.com for more information to make your custom order. Everything he makes is built to order and support Christians making beautiful things.
2: Um, as we think about that, though, Dan, as we think about theological maximalism, as you think about the reformers and the really great ones, you know, our heroes in the faith, one of the words that Dan has used a lot um, that I think these guys all had was range. Yeah. So the the problem is we live in an age of specialists. And so if you're really going to be a practitioner of theological maximalism, you have to have range. You can't just be a knee surgeon. So Dan, I I want to ask you, what do you mean? I know we talked about it a lot. What do you mean by this word range and how do you think it's connected to maximalism?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it brings me to a conversation that Brian and I were having about what makes up a man, Mm. you know, the five aspects of masculinity and maybe, you know, season two of the King's Hall talking about self-ruled men Yeah, and what makes a man. But essentially some of the aspects of masculinity involve the mind, physical ability, wisdom, things like, so the five aspects
1: of masculinity. Lords, husbandmen, saviors sages and glory bearers, which is Dan's referencing Friar Bill Mauser. I think the late Bill Mauser at this point, yeah, who coined
0: these thank five you, aspects. Thank you for listing them because I usually get through four of them and I'm like, there's one What's more. What's that last one again? And there's one more. <laughs> Ruffian troublemaker? That's somewhere.
1: That's right? Eric's sixth aspect of masculinity. Aspect. Ruffian and troublemaker. <laughs> right. I love it.
0: So when you're looking at uh, husbandmen, which is pastoral in nature, versus yep. a sage, which is intellectual in nature, mm-hmm. you have a man that, 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 as you're striving for all these aspects of masculinity, um, which I'm getting off off on a tangent. Uh, I'll bring it back. It means you have range. If you look at men like Martin Luther, Martin Luther, crazy smart guy, right? Yeah. Intelligent, very intelligent. He wrote the music of Christendom at the time, of the Reformation. Yeah. I mean, we sing some of those songs today, like, a mighty fortress is our God. You know what you should do is cut me out and put in the music. That'd be really good. So anyway, that was a guy who had range. Yeah, he 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 thought about the family sphere as well. I mean, reinstituting marriage in the clergy, um, it, you know, and thinking about how to how you raise children and and so the worship of the church and um, uh, the church's worship of God, I should say, and of theology. Those guys had range because they didn't think in just like an egghead. Here, I'm gonna discuss the finer points of theology of, and in, in reform theology, typically we think of soteriology, but I'm glad you included that it's a, a totality of the, theological thought. And so when I say that men have range, just summarizing it, I mean that they think of all aspects of life. They're good at a lot of it. Yeah. And they, they, They are good at a lot of it because, and what makes a man good at a lot of different things is knowing the foundation, what is true. If you know what is true about the way the world works, about the way that God works, about the way that people work, then you're going to, you're going to be better at things naturally. Yeah. Naturally speaking.
1: Yeah. And even, even distinguishing our, our two, because we have theological maximalism and cultural maximalism, what we're talking about right now really encompasses both. Yeah, But if you think about the foundation that a man or a woman of God would need in order to live a godly life out to the edges, it's so important that, that you're actually interested, right? Like the work of theology is done by interested people. And I didn't say interesting people. Said interested people. People I mean, who are actually, yeah. Interesting people are right. interested people. I was gonna get there. I mean, I was oh, about man. to make this brilliant you, setup, oh. bring the conclusion in, and then Dan Burton. No, I'm just we'll kidding. just edit that out. Oh, no, that's good. Uh, interested people though. If if you look at the Bible and you just read it cover to cover like a new Christian reads a Bible cover to cover, would they conclude that the inerrancy of scripture, the resurrection of Jesus, those five fundamentals are like what this is about? Yeah. And that's, you know, maybe part of it, but they would, they'd be like, wow,
2: this is, this book, this book has range. Yeah. And I think that's, um, when, when you think of great pieces of literature, you happen to be reading Lord of the Rings, but I think, wow, this is a book with range because this is, you know, Tolkien is not a one trick pony. Um, it just encompasses all of life from warfare to art to beauty to you think about the, the jewels and the gold of the dwarves and I, I mean, there's so much in there. And so like you couldn't, it would not be easy to systematize. Yeah. Like the pastoral scenes of the
1: Shire. Yes. The comfort of food and table and farm and field. And then the high, high culture of the elves. That's right. Singing and poetry and storytelling and the, you know, the horse culture of, ro- I mean, that's got range.
2: Yeah. And I think fundamentally as, as I, as I was unpacking and thinking about this and reading some guys like Bavink and, and, and Berkhoff, It really struck me that the real issue is that God is infinite. Our worship is a reflection of him. Therefore, our culture is a reflection of God and God being infinite. Like there's no limit to his range. Yeah. In the way that we're using that term. And so we've got to be people fundamentally, as we're thinking about theology and culture, we're going to be thinking about, you know, you have to take these finite creatures and you have to expand their minds. You have to expand their hearts and that's never going to stop. And I think the people who are good at building this are, yeah, they they have a lot of range. Um, one of the things I want to do too in this section is also ground our theological maximalism in scripture. I know a lot of people will be asking, as I have asked in the past, like, where's the scriptural argument for this? So I want to provide a couple things and then get your take um, on some of them and then maybe what you think as well. The first that I thought about was really Solomon. So Solomon is, um, the in the Old Testament, in much of scripture, kind of the... Personification—the historical personification of wisdom, yeah. kingly wisdom—and and then of course he's going to point to Christ. But Solomon is unique because we look at him; he prayed for wisdom, he received it. And Solomon is building gardens, he's building temples, he's building houses, he's mastering people at work, he's creating great art, gold economy. There's really nothing, and I think this is a picture of the kingdom of Christ. There's nothing that his kingdom doesn't touch. Yeah. And when the queen of Sheba comes, what does she say of Solomon? She says, there's no limit. There's no limit to your knowledge and wisdom. There's nothing that I could ask you that you didn't know. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So I think about, here's a guy with practicing theological maximalism. Okay. Yeah. This this Solomonic kingly picture. So, and, you know, we're in the king's hall. Dan, I think that we're after the king's wisdom, the king's theological maximalism. And, you know... Here we have Solomon. He's a king. He's a poet. He's a biologist. He's a diplomat. He's a warrior. This is what kingly wisdom is about. So I want to jump into the next one because there's a lot here. Mm -hmm. This is 2 Timothy 3. All scripture, not some scripture, but all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So as we're talking about theological maximalism, it's theological, in that it's grounded in scripture. This is even the aim of scripture, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. The aim of scripture is to bring all of life under the rule of Christ, every good work. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Like when you talk about Solomon as this prototypical wise king in the line of David, Yeah, he's obviously pointing to Christ who is the, the so, so Solomon is like, you could see the penultimate picture. Right. Christ is the ultimate picture of the solemn of the davidic king and in christ we see are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge all of them meaning that if something is true knowledge that point of knowledge exists and is true because of christ's lordship by him all things were created for him all things and all wisdom you know knowledge is like knowing all the things wisdom is like knowing what to do about all of the things yeah and both of those are hidden in christ so he's the perfect example of the one who you know, when Solomon said that it's the glory of God to conceal things and it's the wisdom of kings to, to search them out, like Christ is both the concealer and the revealer. He's the concealer and he's the one who finds these things, these points of wisdom, and he, they consist in him. So th- this is one of the reasons why theological minimalism is such a, just an impoverishment of the Christian Thought life, this rich intellectual theological tradition that ought to be cultivated in the soil of Christ, why? because if something is true it's true because of christ it's all encompassing it's totalizing the whole scripture is about Christ, the whole world is about Christ so you can't if you're curious and interested in the in in the world or if you're a Christian, you ought to be curious and interested in the world and in Every word of scripture and in every, you know, philosophical thought that you might chase down, because all of them are going to find, you're either going to find, wow, that that little philosophical rabbit trail was not true because it does not consist in Christ. Or you're going to find, wow, that glorious truth that God hid was just waiting for someone to come along and think this thought because it was part of Christ. Like when we talk about men with range, Christ is the ultimate man with range. He's the God man. He has all range, right? He's totally interesting. And so, you know, theological minimalism, I think one of the reasons it impoverishes us is because it just makes us like kids in a house full of toys who are like, I'm bored. You know, like the, <laughs> the world is like this. The Bible is like this. We shouldn't be bored. There's no reason to be bored. And we shouldn't stop with like some little elementary knowledge. Press on.
0: Well, I, I got a question, maybe you guys could help me with because what you're explaining with your definition of theological minimalism in this example, yeah. it to me rings true with even reformed churches that I've been a part of that there's a, a small range of acceptable topics in mm. which to debate. Has that been your experience?
2: I was going to say, yeah, the exact same thing I was thinking of, Dan, especially with the gospel-centered movement. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was weird for a long time because to me, it's like, well, why wouldn't you be centered on the gospel? But the fundamental issue becomes, how do you define the gospel? And most of the reformed churches that I spent time in the last 10 years, they're reducing, this is the minimalism, they're reducing the gospel to soteriology. So like uh, uh, John MacArthur is a good example. He's re- reformed-ish in his soteriology and almost nothing else. So his ecclesiology is not reformed. His worship is not really reformed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, not all, I'm not saying all of that is bad, but I am saying that over time what happens is it becomes very limited. So I noticed when I started talking about, say, like masculinity, people could immediately identify in those churches, well, that's not a gospel issue. And what they mean yeah. is that's not one of the acceptable topics that Mar- Mark Devers, yeah. C.J. Mahaney, whoever else has said, we're. All, this is important. It's not penal substitutionary atonement. That's right. Yeah, even even the reduction,
1: like, it's even it is a reduction of the gospel to salvation, and it's actually a reduction of of the gospel to a subset of the doctrine of salvation. That's
2: only one part of.
1: Salvation. Yeah, because the doctrine of salvation. Think about what it encompasses. I think you can you can consider the doctrine of salvation, the gospel, as if it were basically the entire doctrine of who saves who saves whom, how, and to what end, right? It was just, so God saves whom, his people, to what end? And this is where it gets really important. He saves them so that they can actually be brought to glory in Christ, so that he can establish a new humanity in the, in the image of Christ. So, so part of the doctrine of salvation is sanctification, part of it's glorification. And so even in, the, even in their minimalism, there's minimalism, where it's like, man, I, I, how many times have you had <laughs> I can't, I can't tell you the number of times when we'll be like as a church. One of the things we really aim to do is try to like recapture the whole Christian life together. And so you're like, Hey, let's figure out how to just be friends together. Let's figure out how to recover the household. And so a lot of the things we do at church are not like all a Bible study or a book study. It's like, Hey, do you guys want to come play Frisbee with the kids and hang out at the park? Do you want to, you know, whatever it is, play chess. And people will be like, well, those are great, Pastor. Where's, uh, we need another Bible study though, or we need another like study of this theological book. And it's like, you get these theological eggheads who think that everything should be a Bible study. Every conversation should be about Calvinism. And it ends up being to the detriment of like a thick human culture friendship. And also even to the detriment of having theological range where it's like, if all you're interested in discussing theologically is like, let's say Calvinism and penal substitution.
0: Or even worse, like whatever the hot topic is on Twitter.
1: Yep. That is not a rich theological intellectual life.
2: No. And I would say a lot of times what happens is that's what makes these groups so susceptible to say like critical race theory is because they don't have the range. Um, People who, you know, I, I like to think, you know, the people in the past, somebody like Rush Dooney. Okay, but go back further to somebody like B.B. Warfield. Mm -hmm. He's probably not getting taken in by critical race theory. (laughs) No. (laughs) Because he knows, he has so much range across his theology. Yeah. Um, It brings up a really interesting point, Brian. You talked about the eggheads and like being culturally um, really just impotent. One of the things I was thinking of, and I mentioned this earlier, reading Ken Gentry's book, as he's talking about this comprehensive, exhaustive nature, the very nature of reformed theology is this way. One of the things he does is he quotes somebody we talked about last episode, which was Carl Henry, Yeah, Carl F.H. Henry. And Henry makes the point that reformed theology by nature is a totalizing understanding of theology, history, philosophy, et cetera. And and then I want to read this quote. Um, He says, Christian revelation has nurtured a universal conviction that no theology or philosophy can be comprehensive. That's what he's after, comprehensive theology, unless it deals with the direction of history and the goal of the universe with the matter of man's ultimate destiny and the problem of death. So immediately what I thought of is, well, that's going to take a lot of theological heavy lifting. Like if you want to answer the questions of the goal of the universe, the matter of man's ultimate destiny and the problem of death, you cannot have microwavable theology. That's right.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. I think of another quote from Carl F.H. Henry in page 62 of his book. He said, quote, if Protestant orthodoxy holds itself aloof from the present world predicament, it is doomed to a much reduced role. And then he says some other things, but continues. If the evangelical answer is in terms of religious escapism, then the salt has lost its savor. And, and I think that so much of the problem with this theological minimalism and even this theological eggheadism is that so often it does theology. And you know what? I'm sorry to do this. But I actually think that Mark Driscoll's illustration is one of the best of all time on this topic. So don't take this as an endorsement of everything Mark Driscoll ever did or his current theological vision for sure. But he talked about theological gun collectors, right, who they they had this room full of doctrines and they were like, oh, look, you know, they take down their... This is the Springfield rifle. It was used at this time of the Civil War. And you know, they go through all their rifles and then you take them to the range one day, you're thinking that they're into guns, and they're like, Ew, I don't know how to shoot the gun.
2: I just like to look at them. I just on look the wall. at them.
1: I collect them. And and I think what BB Warfield is getting at here is like not only is it a limiting of of the, the scope of theological inquiry, but it's also a refusal to let it live in the world to apply the doctrine right? Like we just want to talk about Calvinism, but we don't want to think like, what would a Calvinist actually do here in this situation in my marriage or my vocation or in, you know, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe Christians don't just know things and think thoughts. Maybe Christians actually do the things that those thoughts ought to lead them to do.
2: Well, and I, I think a good way to, to look at it, Brian, you've challenged me on this before. We talked about two kingdoms, theology, And you get a lot of the radical two kingdom stuff. Now this is a theology, but Mm -hmm. like the result in their action is okay. So basically stand by and watch while the world burns. Mm -hmm. They claim to be Lutheran in their two kingdoms theology, like the traditional two kingdoms theology. Mm -hmm. But the whole point is you look back at the two kingdoms theology of the reformed crowd and they were like building culture, Christendom. They were not doing the things that people today are doing. So, I want to connect this, Dan to to something you've talked a lot about, which is the Westminster Confession. you You've been reading it. You've been working through catechism stuff. We're doing that as a church. We've done it in our family as well. My question is, you look at the Puritans, you look at the people who were engaging in writing the Westminster Confession and everything that came out of it, including much of what is today, or, you know, what was then, but we have the remnants of it in American culture, politics, et cetera. Westminster, Puritans come to America, shape a whole nation. I'm not saying that still exists today, but they this did. is a long
0: question. By it's the way, it's a long I'm question. Track with you,
2: <laughs> Tr- track my question. You look at the Westminster Confession. Do you see a people that were thinking in theologically minimal ways and that produced a theologically minimal world? No. Next, tell me. No, why. I mean seriously.
0: <laughs> no. So I've got I've got a four year old and a three year old that every night I'm doing the Westminster shorter catechism with. Okay. The very reason that a catechism exists yeah. is to prepare children well, people, but in my case, uh, it's preparing me as well because I'm learning it now for the first time is preparing my children for the way that they think when they it, it's building a worldview, which is really important. It's, it, it's funny because we, we're trying to make a distinction between theological maximalism and cultural maximalism But what you find, and as I talk about cultural maximalism, is it's realized theology. Yeah. Because you don't just live theology in a separate sphere. Yeah. Like here's a silo. That's where my thinking about the world and God and everything that exists, that's where that is. And then I live differently. It's actually cohesive. So you'll see people that have a theological minimalist belief will also live in accordance with that theological minimalist belief. That's why you get the ideal of Christendom as warehouses with light shows and empty sermons. That's why you get that. So back to catechism, when I'm teaching my boys, uh, um, and Brian's actually just started working on a project that he'll announce at some point with the catechism. Yeah. That's actually really exciting. When I ask my boys, how many gods are there? Are there more than, is there more than one God? And they look at me in their little three-year-old, four-year-old way and they go one and they put their finger up and then they go the living and true God. And I'm like, boys, you are based. That is so based because what's, what that, what's that doing that theology, that worldview that's being developed. They're going to go out into the world and they're going to encounter ideas that say there's a different God. There's another way to Christ. There's another way to God. Or you're your own god, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's many gods. There's yeah. a pantheon there's of gods. There's all kinds of gods, and they can look them in the eyes and go, "There's one true and living God." And so, I don't remember what your original question was. Yeah, the Westminster,
1: yeah, the confession fun- is not a theologically minimalist no, doctrine. And what's funny is they don't the, the, the framers of the theolog of the Westminster Confession they didn't think. That they were they they were describing the totality of theology, like this was their big picture that's their like version of the gospel right. track <laughs> and you go read it and you're like this is their this is their snapshot it's the shorter catechism
0: yeah. you've gotta yeah. be kidding it's me right
1: like <laughs> Today, if you look at, we've even had to go, you like New City Catechism or whatever, that that then boils it down even further, like, wow, 107 questions, that's too many. Let's do 52. Wow, too many big words. Let's boil it down. Like, when you look at previous generations' idea of even crystallizing the faith, it just shows how impoverished we are today, shows how
2: theologically minimalist we actually are. Yeah, and I think that what I'm driving at, Dan, to ask a simple question for your simple mind. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Yes. Where does the culture come from? So, if you have theological minimalism, what kind of culture does it produce? The Puritan culture shaped America, Puritan work ethic. It, yeah. it shaped so much of what our country, indeed, in its best form was. And it all came because they were theologically maximal. So, we're going to dovetail now into really Dan's section, which is on cultural maximalism. Yeah. But as we do that, I, I want to ask a question about reformed churches. Okay. I think that the ultimate litmus test of what's going on in a church is actually the culture it produces and not necessarily the confessional statement on its website. Mm. One of the things that I've noticed, and I've been to, I counted this up for the show. I think in the last 12 years, we've been a part of 15 different churches. I think members at seven. Now, a lot of that is job moving. A lot of that is in seminary. You're naturally like, I go here and I do this internship. And so- so it, this isn't like leaving churches in bad form or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that has struck me about it, I can think of two churches that I've been to where I have said, I want this culture. Um, one is Moscow and the other is here mm. Moscow and, russia like yes Putin, Putin? East, Eastern Orthodox <laughs> Oh okay, no you were oh you were talking about dang the it. other Moscow dang it yeah, so okay Moscow, idaho. It, 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 and, and the reason I would say that is because it's not like, um, you know, you look at the totality of their culture and you say, this is really beautiful and grand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and everybody that I've kind of talked to has said sort of the same things. Yeah. Um, so my question is, why do you think, I think this, but why do you think we have a culture creating problem in reformed circles? We have reformed doctrine. Why oh, don't we have, so why don't we have 30 cultures in 30 churches or more yeah. across America where people go, Man, I'm living and breathing the new kingdom of Jesus here. I'm so glad you're asking this question, Eric, because it's such a perfect segue
1: between theological maximalism and cultural maximalism. I think that so much of the problem that we've seen is on the one hand, I think that there's been a certain kind of gospel centrality movement. Yeah. This has gone through. The church in many different places. I mean, you see it in Acts 29, you see it, but I think you also see it in confessional reformed churches where some of the, the, the applicational theolo- theology that's been in the air, that's been shaping everything from how pastors are being taught to preach sermons to how theological books have been written to, you know, even all the way down to like how the model for, um, things like family worship and, and vocational theology is done is it connects to this gospel centrality movement that I think has a similar arc to the fundamentalism that we saw, where they were trying to respond, the fundamentalism was trying to respond to theological liberalism, like turn of the century theological liberalism, which was like high octane theological liberalism. I think the gospel center movement was also started from a, a good hearted place of responding to the big, fast and famous megachurch movement, where they saw instead of application being preached from the scriptures to Christians to shape the Christian life, they saw pragmatism where the mega churches were basically using applicational theology as like a hook to get non-Christians to come where they were like, well, non-Christians have marriage problems. So let's preach a pragmatist sermon on marriage problems and money problems and all this kind of stuff to get the non-believers in. And so the gospel center movement probably started with saying like, no, You cannot just, you can't just give non-believers moral teaching and change anything. You can't do that. But what happened, similarly to fundamentalism and theological minimalism, man, what happened is that all of a sudden, the only sermon you were allowed to preach when it came to moral application was like, okay, Paul says to put off envy. Man, well, Jesus never envied. We're thankful that Jesus never envied. You know, I, I know that all of you envy every day and you're full of envy and you're a totally envious people, all you Christians, but just have faith that Christ never envied for you. His record of righteousness is counted to you, you know, by faith. Good, glorious. I'm so glad that people say, I say glorious a lot in this podcast because I do. You do. And it's okay. They, they never go on and say, <laughs> and because of his credited righteousness to you and because of your new birth and because of your new heart and because of the spirit in you, you Now go and obey and here, let me explain to you practically how not to envy anymore. And I just think this, this gospel centrality has worked itself through so much of the church. Mark Driscoll's a reason why, like you go back to the Young Wrestlers Reformed. It was kind of the neck, the genesis of a lot of the popularity of gospel centrality as a movement. And uh, you see, goes through like Jared C. Wilson's books. And, you know, a a lot of this kind of like what was influential in Calvinist Christianity um, became the doorway for a lot of non-Calvinists who became Calvinists. And so a lot of young people became Reformed in the Young Restless and reform movement, but they became Reformed in a way that was disconnected from multi-generational, confessional, Reformed Christianity. And so they were basically Baptists who were Calvinists and gospel-centered. And so you just saw this, like all of the popular culture level Reformed, quote unquote, Christianity was coming from this stream and that stream was functionally antinomian. Mm. It was functionally antinomian. It was theologically minimalist. And what's funny is nobody would have thought it was theologically minimalist because they were like, we're, Cal- you know, we're nerd, we're theology nerds. We read Calvin. We re-, but they were reading all of that through the lens of their gospel centrality. And so instead of actually noticing things like, wow, how, Calvin's Geneva was based. (laughs) (laughs) They seem to really believe that. I don't know the gospel, the the scriptures had something to say about the political sphere and the ecclesial sphere and all the, you know, the home sphere, marriage. And it was like, so when I, when I think about that question, I really, I see a repetition of the fundamentalist error in a reductionist Christianity being repeated in gospel centrality, creating a people who think, that they're not theologically minimalist, but actually
2: end up becoming doctrinal gun collectors who don't know how to apply the scriptures. Do you think Dan, I'll ask you this question. Do you think we have a culture problem in much of Christendom in America?
0: Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that, and it wasn't by accident, Brian brought up the sin of envy Mm. because I think what had happened is that in response to the big, fast, famous mega church model, There were some with good intentions that said, no, it has to be the gospel centered, you know, this gospel centered thing because the gospel is good. And we want it at the center because there's a whole bunch of non, non non-believers in the pews at these mega churches. But there were others who were envious of those who had the big platforms. Yeah. And so what is the new mega church? It's the gospel centered.
1: It's the gospel centered X29 model megachurch.
0: That's right. Yeah. And then you, you've got another ditch that it's produced that we've encountered. And this might be more fringe. I don't know. I would be curious to get your thoughts is essentially a soft Gnosticism to where the gospel is treated as a magic set of words that if you believe this, this particular set of knowledge yeah. that, that is, you know, from your guru, that that is the way to ascend into heaven. You also have with antinomianism, which again is defined as a formal dismissal of the third use of the law, which is an application for life. It's also Gnostic Mm -hmm. because it treats the spiritual world as this higher world Mm -hmm. and disdains the physical. And so it just, it strikes a little close to Gnosticism for me. (laughs) gnostic. Uh, meaning gnosis, uh, which knowledge. is knowledge, having a special knowledge, and then also disdain for the physical and the spiritual being higher. Mm-hmm. So you have those hallmarks. I don't know if you guys have seen that, if I'm being crazy or uncharitable in that assessment.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that it's a good way of thinking about the same kind of topic because what it does, what Gnosticism tends to do is it, it of course, um, shears or snips the connection the vital connection between theological knowledge and the physical life embodied Christianity. Because of course, if, if the flesh is bad, if, and I'm not saying, I don't, I don't think gospel centered people or, or a lot of people with this error are formally Gnostic. No, I think what no, you're no. saying is that they're, they're making an error that ends up producing fruit in the same category.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you see this in different ways. And it, it gets even more extreme when you're like in the ascetic movement or like despise the poverty gospel is something that we talked about is another thing. Like you look at the ascetics of old and they're like, we're we're not going to experience pleasure at all. We're going to eat paste and (laughs) not have sex and not look at anything beautiful because it might cause us to sin. And I don't think that's happening, but you can see how these echoes through church history are kind of coming to the forefront. And you're like, well, it kind of, yeah, it kind of looks like a little bit like Gnosticism. They, they
1: rearrange the. That's why I think it's interesting. You know, you don't see anything new. The gospel centered errors are similar to the errors of fundamentalism. You know, Gnosticism is similar. The, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it does rhyme. Yeah. I think Mark Twain said. So it's like you get these, these echoes that will show up in different costumes throughout history. It's the same, same dog, different hair as my grandpa would say.
2: Yeah. And then, then, you know, fundamentally we asked to connect the, you know, theology to culture here, but the the cultural issue for me is I'm looking at these churches and they're not building Christendom. Yep. They're not changing the world. They're not even trying. They don't want to. They're
0: not even building their own
2: families. Quote unquote Calvinist. Yeah. But, but not building your own family. So I think just in my own mind, at least I'm tying it all together in the sense of, well, you have to have this a certain kind of theology and a theological approach that it it produces a certain kind of culture that then shapes a certain kind of world. Yeah. And this
1: really brings us to the the second heading, which is that, so first we're saying that instead of theological minimalism, we need to pursue theological maximalism to sum up what we're saying with theological maximalism is that we do not believe that it's adequate to identify the lowest common denominator of theological doctrine someone could believe to become a Christian, though that can be a useful exercise in apologetics or evangelism, but that you must go on to disciple Christians to understand all of scripture and how it applies to all of life. Mm. Even though we're not going to, no single person is going to finish that project in their single life. But the church as a whole body ought to be pursuing a maximalist form of theological inquiry because we ought to be interested in God in the world that he's made. If he's good and glorious and awesome and holy, we ought to be interested in him in the words that he's given us and not just these minimalist formulas. But as we often say, ripping off Douglas Wilson shamelessly, theology is not really believed until it comes out of your fingertips. And so We've got one, we've got the hand of theological maximalism and the glove of cultural maximalism and and legacy minded cultural maximalism. So Dan, take, take us away here.
0: I would have said the hand in the plow,
1: but that's better. You know, that's better. Let's edit a hand in the
0: plow, the hand in the plow. That's right. We don't have to edit that. That's fine. I want, (laughs) I want people to know that I corrected you and there's something that you admitted was, you know what we're going to do. We're going to make the volume on that section
1: (laughs) twice as high. (laughs)
0: So, yeah, I think you did a really good job of defining this cultural maximalism. And I want, I want to also preface that this is going to be not just cultural maximalism, but legacy minded cultural maximalism. So you're going to get a flavor of both in this definition, in this part of the discussion, but time and time again, we keep bumping into, you know, theology and culture in our, in our discussion already. And And let me just define what I mean by cultural maximalism. So culture, if I can be allowed to define it, I think I've already done this on the show before, but at its root uh, is the Latin word cultus, which means worship, means worship. So the culture, you should, should be able to look at any culture, any group of people, what they do, what they find to be important, what they find distasteful, social norms, family structures, and figure out what they worship. There was one, I think it was a British politician. He said that there is the self-made man and he worshiped his creator. I thought that was kind of funny. It was supposed to be an insult. Self-made man. He's a self-made man and he He worshiped worshiped his his Uh, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. uh. Pretty funny. Anyway, that really didn't have anything to do with what I was talking about, but but,
1: it was a good joke, but yeah, I thought it was okay. It
0: was a good pun. It was okay. So at the core of any people, you should be able to look at what they do and figure out what they worship. It's just going back upstream and like, where did, where's the headwaters? What are the headwaters of these people? So doing a case study, you should be able to look at the world around us, look at the news. What, is, what are the blasphemy laws of today?
1: Yeah, what aren't you allowed to say?
0: What aren't you? Yeah, apparently, Brian, you're not allowed to, to say what women can and cannot wear. <laughs> oh, let me tell you about that. <laughs> no, you are not. Yeah!
2: Well, I think too, uh, Dan, as you're talking about this, so I looked up uh, Merriam-Webster's definition of culture and the first two meanings, the number one meaning uh, the customary beliefs, social forms, material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. So their characteristics, their features, and the components of their everyday existence. That's definition number one. And it includes shared attitudes, values, goals, practices that characterize them. Okay, so that's number one. And number two, Enlightenment and excellence of taste acquired by intellectual and aesthetic training. Interesting. So liturgy. Or yeah. acquaintance with and taste in fine arts, humanities, broad aspects of science <clears throat> as distinguished from vocational and technical skills. So it's really interesting. On the one h- side, you have like arts, humanities, entertainment. Mm-hmm. They admit that you have to be trained in these. Yeah. So this is where we get phrases like high culture. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be trained to love the good things. Yeah, like you're cultured versus not cultured. Yes. So that's the second definition. But the first is kind of the fundamental of worship. It fundamentally is what you believe, how you practice life together as a community. Um, All of that is culture. So even in the definition, it seems like, wow, this is a really maximalist term even. Yes. It
0: produces a people. Yes, that's right. People are necessary to produce culture. Yeah. And so... I mean, we could go into the roots of like why did why have we ended up where we are with the Enlightenment? Perhaps the pursuit of happiness is the highest end of man, instead of the pursuit uh, the pursuit of truth, virtue. But but I would say in this model of Christendom that we're seeking to build, at its core, the the core belief. Obviously, you know you're a Christian. You believe the gospel, the totality of Scripture, all these fundamental things. But the character, the character trait that you can look out among the people you can see is a love of neighbor. I think that is one of the, the hallmark things that you can see in this new Christendom is a love of neighbor that we are defined by our love of neighbor. Usually in churchianity, that's like, Oh, they had a great culture. Oh, they're really friendly. Love your neighbor. Wear a mask. Why'd you have to take it that way? (laughs) You know, there, there was a, there was a, a YouTube video I was watching I, I'm in gardening season like planting and, and such and there's this homesteading family and they had put out a, a it, I thought it was clickbait it said like we've lost everything what are we going to do and so I, I, I look at the video because was only four minutes long and I can watch it at 2x speed and it starts with a tornado it's an F4 tornado and it's heading right towards their house okay I mean, it's in the daylight, so you can see it. Cue the
2: sound effects. It's coming. seriously.
0: It's it's coming right at their house. And then it turns off, and the next scene you see is their entire farm destroyed. Mm. It didn't touch their house, thankfully. But you look, and the trees are uprooted. These huge trees that had to be 50, 100 years old are uprooted and and fallen over. And the younger trees that were able to flex in the wind— had like weed barrier and garbage and lumber from their barn and feed sacks and things like that stuck up in the trees. And uh, they literally like, they lost everything except their thankfully their home. But then they had a community. They had, it, it appeared to be hundreds of people come to their farm and they had heavy equipment and they're moving, you know, these big pieces of like debris and garbage that had, you know, blown off of their barns and everything like that with skid steers and stuff. And in an afternoon, this community had come around them and had cleaned up their entire farm. And I looked at that and I'm like, oh man, I want to be that guy that when I get in trouble, a tornado hits my home. Thankfully I'm in Utah. So it's probably going to be like a, a flattening earthquake. There was a tornado the week I moved to Utah. Really? There was a tornado in Riverdale what, three years ago, something like that. Being from the Midwest, that's like, oh yeah, Tuesday. Yeah, it was Tuesday, there was a tornado. Anyway, uh, the point is, if disaster hits, if a health issue, if I die, because I think about this a lot, if I die, what's going to happen with my wife and kids? You know, I've tried to live wise and leave an inheritance for my my kids and enough to take care of my wife, but I'm still, I'm in my thirties. I'm still in my working years. Like I'm still trying to pile on, you know, into investments and assets so I can take care of them. Is there going to be a community around them? Yeah, And I think that's one of the hallmarks that we should be able to look around at our community and see is that these people are defined by the love of their neighbor. That is one of the defining characteristics of these people. And I think if you look in the world around us, you would see that, that the opposite is a- actually true. Mm-hmm. Self-definition is very important for people. That's why they can't figure out who they are because they're trying to define themselves, recreate themselves.
2: I think this is actually uh, one of the reasons uh, people have pointed to, like, the T U V community, and uh, I don't know where it stops, right? W-X-Y-Z. Yeah, just finish it. Dollar and sign. uh Dollar sign. And um, you look at that community, and they say one of the reasons they're good at stealing our kids is because you have this close-knit, we care for you. It's a lie, of course. There's sort yeah. of a close-knit community. One of the things that I've experienced in my time in the church is that Most churches have less requirements and less, oh, value to my soul than like a book club. Um, They don't require much of you. You don't get much out of them. You don't really do anything with the people that you go there with. Preaching might be great. Yeah. Never see them during the week, aren't working on mission together, aren't doing anything meaningful together. This plays into culture. So I'm just wondering what is producing that? Yeah. Because that's a fruit of something. Yeah.
1: And, and I think what we're talking about is like hand in glove again, where you talk about theological minimalism leads to cultural minimalism. Because if you th- think about something like a, a radical two kingdom view, radical two kingdom view would say that there's this spiritual kingdom that, and I'm really trying not to straw man this. I want to represent it in a way that someone who actually holds a view would say, yeah, that's what we believe. They would say that you have the, the, the scriptures that generally govern the special revelation, governs this special community of the church regulates its worship and life and, and obedience to Christ as the people of God, the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom. And then you have the common kingdom, which is governed mainly through natural law established all the way back in Genesis nine. After common the, grace after the flood. Yeah. Go- governed through, I think NL two K is the, the, the way that I remember it. Natural law to kingdom. Okay. Right. Natural law to kingdom view. And you can, you can read a book by Henry O'Neill. I think I can't remember how to say it. That talks about this, this view and they trace a lot of this from Noah onward, where Noah has established, God establishes the, the death penalty, sort of like the basis of human natural law. And so you have this common kingdom that's governed by natural revelation, natural law. Then you have this special spiritual kingdom that's governed by the scriptures. And so what ends up happening is that uh, in like, say, Michael Horton's view, you would end up with basically a view of Christianity where a lot of what Christians do throughout the
2: week is not actually governed primarily by the scriptures. And so sort of like tends to not matter. It seems like, I'm not, I'm sure they wouldn't say that. Yeah, they wouldn't say it doesn't matter. They would say it matters in a different way. They would say that it matters in a, like a
1: passing or ephemeral way that this world is passing away, don't cling to it. They would criticize like us as dominionists who are all about like, redeeming and transforming the culture and you're just fighting a culture war and you're doing all this like you're just obsessed with basically rearranging the common kingdom, but the common kingdom is not the spiritual kingdom. So, so you see this kind of like these views that are in opposition and obviously we are not NL2K, what we call radical two kingdoms sort of guys. We're post-millennial and applicational. And, and we believe that, like we've said on this show that we believe the kingdom of God is invading, conquering, colonizing, and transforming the world. <laughs> so clearly we have a position in this fight, right? Or in this disagreement. But think about what that view would produce in the world in terms of culture. Which view? The, the NL2K okay. view. If you're a, you know, if you come to your pastor and you say like, how should I vote? They're going to tell you something totally different, right? They're going to be like, "Well, you know, th- this is the view that allowed that ends up being like you can vote for Democrats and you can vote for because political life is like we shouldn't be talking about Bible verses so much as we should be talking about natural revelation." And you, and the thing about natural revelation is that it's pretty elastic. Like you can make <laughs> you can make almost anything sound like argue to it from natural revelation. I think. Do
2: you think dispensationalism? would would kind of go in a similar camp here, right? Um, two kingdoms, theology, the the radical two kingdoms. I, I'm using that term because I, I thought that's what it was called. I don't know if I'm radical two. no, they wouldn't like that. so they think. would say r two k stands for reformed two kingdoms would be
0: r two k. so I've for seen both modern two kingdoms, I think
1: yeah, that's probably th- equally th- th- as so a dig, but <laughs> to blow your mind, like I don't even mind if someone calls my view of a species of two kingdoms, provided I get to define what they mean. Like I think Kyperian sphere sovereignty is a species of two kingdoms where we're saying that there's, that God uh, has given different, like he's given authority, structures, hierarchy, standards, and, and, and governance within different spheres of human life.
0: Like the state is the totally diaconess of God, a, right. a servant of God. Right, yeah. exactly. So you take, you'd say like the family has the rod of discipline
1: and the church has the keys of the kingdom and the state has the sword of justice and you have these different spheres and and they are governed by different instructions. But they're all, I would say, where we part ways is that that, that they're all governed by the special revelation and and they're all expected to obey Christ. And and the thing is, like NL2K guys would say, yeah, we believe the same thing. We just think that Christ is saying to the natural sphere, to the common kingdom, obey natural law, not special revelation. So this was a long excursus to say, I think that that remind me of your question. I'm trying to remember where yeah, I think the end.
2: original question uh, was just, do we have a culture problem? Yes. Yes. So I think part of the roots of
1: our culture problem is that we're, instead of saying we're going to push our Christian faith out to the edges, like the, the two kingdoms folks, they actually mock the idea. Like they say, is there a Christian way of cooking? Surfry fry was one example that Brian Madison in their book. Yeah. What was their book called? do you remember? Oh,
0: I can't remember. It, it, was, it was short. Really, it was really good. Short book. Little it was book, a series Brian. of lectures that he gave, I think. Yeah.
1: And it was like a little booklet, Brian Madison and, and another Matheson Madison and another co-author wrote. And they, they were talking about how two kingdoms guys will literally say like, is there a Christian way of cooking stir fry? And their point was, no, you just, you know, you cook stir fry excellently with, and, and a Christian should basically like go to the stir fry restaurant. That's the best, whether it's a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu. And and then the, the they responded in criticism and critique of the Two Kingdoms view. Like, absolutely there's a Christian way of cooking stir fry. Have you been have you tried cooking beef in the in in India where Hinduism is dominant? What about pork in the Middle East? Have you ever tried that? Obviously, food is religious. Obviously, food is a highly religious subject. And their point is that you cannot find an aspect of life that is not religious. That is not moored ultimately to religious standards. This is the whole cultist culture connection.
2: Yeah, and the whole even Merriam Webster, their definition of culture, basically everything you do from the, the clothes you wear, right? It's religion externalized. Mm-hmm.
1: Henry Van Til, culture is religion externalized. Yeah, same. It's w- when we're talking about the the ba- basically cultures are the outflow of people's worship, and then that culture though, like there's an interplay where. The culture, the people create the culture out of their worship, but then the culture also makes the people. So as you talk about cultural transmission, this is where one of the failures, uh, the, the cultural minimalism, I would call like R2K theology has led to cultural minimalism that has led to a failure of trans, culture transmission where you have generational disjunctiveness where you know parents are failing to pass on their a full-orbed Christian faith to their children which is why lots of Christian denominations, human reform denominations, will be apostate, liberal, or done within the next 20 years or 50 years. Because they're not
2: transmitting their culture. It's interesting, too. So that's the final definition of culture here. Is the integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior that depends upon the capacity for transmission that's of right. knowledge to succeeding generations. Yeah, that's right. So when we're talking about culture, like embedded in that definition is you have to pass it on.
0: Yeah, so Eric. That's why exactly? it
2: exists why do,
0: so do you think there's actually a culture war going on then are are we at war is, i mean this is what the r2k people uh, accuse us of is like oh those culture warriors
2: they're culture
0: warriors you're a culture warrior you're just yeah, yeah
1: what, what do you think about that what is that criticism and 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 how should we think about it
2: well i do think part of it is is there are definitely first of all i would say are we in a culture war yes but then i would want to define what that war is what are we fighting over yeah, yeah. And then I would also want to define, there's a lot of people who, like, this is Doug Wilson's, I don't remember all the things, but like co, co-combatants, co-belligerents, yeah. and then just enemies. There's actually a lot of people who are fighting in the, quote, culture war, where I would say, like, eh, we're not fighting the same culture war. Yeah. You know, a Mormon in Salt Lake might say, yeah, we're fighting the culture war. <laughs> yeah.
1: My, my Mormon neighbors are always liking my stuff on Facebook, and yeah. they're like, yeah, man, and we talk, and I, and I love them. They're, they're great neighbors, but... They're they're We're not we're not actually fighting for the same end.
2: Yeah. And, and so I would say in my lifetime, one of the mistakes of the quote unquote culture war is, you know, not to pick on them. They've done a lot of great work. But I think of like the James Dobson focus on the family. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to go to Hollywood and we're going to shame them. or not, not, And I think a lot of what they did was good. You know, we're going to tell them that what they're making is lewd, which it is. I don't yeah. disagree with any of that. But my point would be that culture, cultists, to Dan's point, culture wars begin by building a culture which begins by worship. So if you really want to build a culture, you should probably get Jeff Meyer's book on covenant renewal, the Lord's service. You should really think about the way your people are worshiping. Mm-hmm. And you should think about, first and foremost, this is sort of the like, get your household in order. Like, go get your church in order. Yeah. Again, to go back to that, if you want to fight a culture war, you have to have a culture. And this is why I get it, it's a concern of mine because I look at the Reformed Church and I say, you have a lot of the right theology, but I just don't see good cultures being produced. Well, a
1: lot of the, um, a lot of like we've even had criticism of the show where they're like, you guys are way too, too hard on dispensationalism or premillennialism and way too heavy on the post mill stuff. But think about it when you're actually transmitting a the, the culture and applying the theology, you're doing so towards your definition of the missio day. Yeah. like what is the mission of God for all of the, this whole project, but also like what is the missio day as it applies to an individual human life, family, local church, etc. And we would say, like I would say, we have a very thick view of that, where we say the missio day, because the missio day is to make disciples of the nations, to disciple the nations. Baptize them in the triune name, and then to teach them all that Christ commanded. I think that third category teaches them, like, and and especially when you factor in Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, that all scriptures God breathed and profitable to equip the man of good uh, of God for every good work. And we've said every political good work, every sexual good work, every familial good work, every sociocultural good work, every economic good work. Every like go, you could go on. It's like that category of discipling human beings to me means that the Moscow, Idaho phrase, all of Christ for all of life is the correct view of the Missio Dei for an individual Christian life and human life. And so when you're, when you're actually taking your theology from a systematic view of like, what do the scriptures teach about all these different topics? And then you're landing them in how then shall we live? It really deeply matters how you answer the question of what actually is the Missio Dei. If the Missio Dei, is actually not to successfully disciple the nations in the end, that's going to have big implications for how you live. Yeah. Or if you don't think it's going to be successful. It's going to have big implications for how you live. If you believe that there's this common kingdom that actually encompasses most of human life, to be honest, that is governed by natural law that we shouldn't be going into and saying, God says in Leviticus or God says in Galatians, that's going to really deeply impact how you land your theology in your culture. So I think that's why you do have a lot of even reformed churches that produce cultures of um, uh, unfruitful theological eggheads because they, they know a lot of theological data, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't actually know what to do with it. And, and actually the opposite should be true. We should be practitioners. you don't actually know something until you know how to obey it in your life
2: and that's, that's fundamentally I mean, w- when you get down to the nuts and bolts, what is cultural creation? Cultural creation is leading your family and family worship, but it's also changing diapers and disciplining you know, bringing the the board of education to the seat of knowledge, as Doug would say, <laughs> disciplining yeah. your kids on a daily basis. When you're doing those things, you're creating a culture. When you rejoice over a meal, when you go gladly to psalm sing, when you rejoice over reading Plutarch and learning the Christian perspective on it, that's all cultural formation
1: too. Even when you think about like, okay, so you're, you're looking at culture formation and you say, and this is where I think the... The Two Kingdom guys, the especially more modern Two Kingdom guys, criticize and try to dunk on us, Us, you know, whatever you want to call us. They call us One Kingdom guys. So much for
0: having a Two Kingdoms episode, man.
1: Yeah, we we might do that in the future. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we're kind of in there. We're we're in the weeds now of the Two Kingdoms stuff. I think one of the things that they tend to say and make fun of is like, well— you Christians, like y- y- you, you post mill people, you're always talking about politics and jobs and businesses and economics and all this sort of stuff. And, and I'm like, yes, because a big part of the cultural engine is I'm like, we should actually be talking about the Christian view of supply chains, the
0: well, Christian view of agriculture. Cause at the core of it, it's loving of neighbor. That's right. back to my original point because the systems of taxes that we have right now is Fundamentally not loving your neighbor. Yeah, it's fundamentally Pay your fair okay. share, billionaires. We're gonna
2: just steal like eighty yeah. percent of your income. Well, the the other thing about this though, and this, you know, you could go on a thousand tangents, but I think this is why as I've focused a lot on masculinity, part of the issue here is I think this is why so many men are turned off by the church is because the only realm that matters, you're told, in a lot of the two kingdom theology is like your quiet time life with Jesus. Yeah. So all the stuff, Brian, you talked about, like culture, economics, business, this is how men are hardwired to be outward facing toward the culture and to want to impact those things. Solomon did. Yeah. But then when you tell that guy, well, our church, is only about, you know, how you read Psalms and, you know, your quiet time with Jesus. And yeah, that, your devotions. Your prayer time with your wife. Yeah. I think a, that's why a lot of guys actually check out because they're like, well, totally. that's a pretty gay version yeah. of Christianity. Totally.
1: Because- You're telling the men, like most of the normally masculine things aren't Christian Yeah, in a peculiar way. That's part of the common kingdom. So they're like, eh, okay. Like, yeah, if my vocation, if like me being a plumber or a politician or a cop or whatever it is has nothing to do or very little to do, like, yeah, don't steal. <laughs> okay, sure. Like, yeah. But if you can't actually tell me, like, okay, I'm a farmer. How should I actually, is there a Christian way to farm that's beyond just don't steal? Well, in here, this is, I I think it's actually crazy that these guys think that they have a corner on natural law, because when I go, is there a Christian way to farm? I'm like, you should actually look at the way that regenerative farming relates to the way that God made soil to be built up Mm. and the way that God, like this is theology. This is a applied theology. When you're saying, what are all of the sermons? There are probably a hundred sermons, there's way more than that, in just, how the, in just the way that God made soil to be developed. The interplay between insects, grazing animals, pasture land, and soil development.
0: Not only that, but then if you put in, if, if you have a dispensational mindset or a, a, just a loser es- eschatology, yeah. then so what? What about regenerative soils? So you might produce a little bit more corn or whatever it is in yeah. the long run.
2: What would it actually matter if you
0: you have a legacy mind Mm -hmm. where you're like, no, we're actually just the slow, inevitable march to victory as Christ is putting all of His enemies under His feet, and there's a chance that my 40 acres of land that I'm farming will be here for my fifth generation. What sort of things can I plant now? What sort of things can I do to my soil now that will make things better to them for them in a generation? And so, obviously, it goes beyond just farming, like the way I manage my finances for my family. I have enough money to buy, I don't know, a new car, Yeah, but you know yeah. what? I'm driving a very old truck that has engine problems. I've <laughs> tore the engine apart multiple times. It's not because I'm some sort of great man. It's because I know the stuff isn't for me.
2: Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, Dan. You're absolutely right. Brian, you're talking about soil. Dan, you're talking about cultivation. So final definition that I'm drawing out from Merriam-Webster, because yeah. you guys, are, you're not even looking at this. No, we're not. We didn't plan this. I don't look to Miriam for her definition. Miriam. (laughs) Miriam. (laughs) Wow. So the final definition, uh, Miriam Webster for culture is the form of cultivation or tillage. And so it's referring to the soil, the act or process of cultivating living materials such as bacteria, viruses, soil, plants, nutrients, et cetera, uh, prepared in such form of cultivation as a farmer, et cetera, et cetera requires this culture, this form of culture requires expert care and training. So really, again, we're talking about culture, cultivation, yeah, people, soil, it's all interconnected in God's yeah. organic design.
0: Yeah, and if, if you look at the, the, the fields that we're tilling, like to, to put it in a metaphorical term, not an actual soil and dirt, if we're a legacy-minded, the slow, inevitable march to victory through the ages what sort of things should we be cultivating as in like tilling the soil of our, our people to look to produce in the long run? What, what do you guys think? Should this culture produce? What should we be aiming to produce if that's true? If all of these things that we've talked about with theology are true and if the mission, mm-hmm. the Missio Dei that you've talked about yeah. is true and the Great Commission is true, what sort of things should be the outflow? from that people.
1: Here's what I would say. And this really distinguishes us, I think in what we're putting forward from these other common popular models that might be summed up in gospel centrality, modern two kingdoms, a lot of those sorts of things is that what we're saying is there is such thing as a Christian view of everything. Mm. There is such thing as a Christian view of everything. Why? Because what we're fundamentally preaching when we preach the good news of Christ Jesus and his kingdom is that the king has ransomed us from the futile ways of sin and death, which infect every aspect of what it means to be human so that we, everywhere we go, we bring death. We bring death vocationally. We bring death economically. We bring death sexually bring everywhere we go. We bring death. Well, because the king has come, not only has he forgiven our sin, not only is penal substitutionary atonement true, but actually so is new birth and new creation. And he's, making a new humanity that's conformed to the image of the God, man, Christ. And so he's actually redeeming and transforming every aspect of what it means to be a human being. Mm. Like this is the difference is that we're not just waiting for uh, a future uh, hope that is completely future where we basically just get by here and hope to change people's minds on the doctrine of justification, like get them to confess that they're sinners. We actually want to see them become new humans and form new human ways and cultures in every aspect of what it means to be human. So that's it. I think we're saying that there is such thing as Christian economics. There is such thing as Christian sexuality. There is such thing as Christian music. There's such thing as Christian painting, Christian cooking, Christian uh, architecture, Christian literally fill in the blank. And and the glorious, amazing, good news. I just said glorious again. The glorious (laughs) thing about that is that, what it does is it makes it so your entire life can be meaningful, interesting. And you can tell, like you can literally say there is so much left to be done. You guys, when we're discipling the world, we're not actually just converting the world. We're discipling the world. That's mm. the task. So we should actually expect to be able to tell someone like, man, like for example, in our community, I really, really deeply hope that at some point, either somebody takes up the interest or, one of our children or we see somebody saved who's a classical oil painter so that we can reclaim Christian oil painting from gay modern art. And we can just see like a glorious culture of oil painting and beauty reclaimed from the gayness of modern art. Yeah. And and that's a Christian endeavor. It's a Christian endeavor. That's not just a neutral common kingdom sphere thing. Putting paint on a canvas should, can be done Christianly and it can be done demonically.
0: So, so I, that's really good. Thank you. A lot of it still, though, is, is kind of in the ether. These are really good ideas. And they have direct applications, obviously. Like there's a Christian way of doing everything. But where do, where do you start, Eric? What If you were starting new, if you're a pastor of a church, say you're a pastor of a church, hearing this and you're like, yes, I want that. I want that vision of beauty. You can look back at the old Christendom in Europe and they're like, they built some of the most beautiful things, painted some of the most beautiful things, composed some of the most beautiful things. And you're like, yes. Where do you start as a pastor, I think of a church or as a father of a family? What does that look like right now?
2: Yeah, I think the reason, Dan, it's such a tough question and my earlier questions, I think are getting at this. What is in the secret special sauce? Mm, So I can look to certain communities and say, I like that. I want that. But it is really actually hard to identify what it is about certain cultures. Yeah. So, for example, um, there's something about Doug's people, and it's not just Doug, but I'm, you know, Doug's people, the people in Moscow, there's something about their culture, whether it's the joy, the robust theology, the post mill, the education. I don't know. There's something going on there. Um, you come here, there's something going on. I think the problem in asking that question is like, how do you as a pastor change it? Well, I was pastoring a church of about 50 people and I couldn't change it. Yeah. And I can't, I I would say I could, I was not possible for me to fully create a culture just with me and my household either. Yeah. And one of the reasons I bring this up is because I think one of the answers to this question, if you want to create Christendom and you want to create Christian culture, you got to find a Geneva. You got to find a mix of other guys. It's almost like charcoal. I've always used that analogy, but like I can't start a charcoal fire, a charcoal fire with one brick. I got to have like a couple. Yeah. And then I look at the gospels and I'm like, well, Jesus fundamentally is making Christian culture and he gets 12 guys and really he's getting 12 guys plus their families. So that's actually a lot of people. And their connections and and their connections. So he, he, he is not just saying like, You know, just you, and and I think that's the problem for a lot of us. Is we I meet guys on Twitter all the time, and it's like, yeah, there's one pastor in his church, and maybe he has kind of one guy who kind of supports him. Is that enough to build Christian culture for that guy's sake? I hope so. There are very few men on planet Earth in the history of the world, and I know that's a big statement. There are very few people ever who could single handedly do that. Who could single handedly do much worth doing? I think. Uh, Doug Wilson, I think of a Cotton Mather. Some pretty rare
1: Yeah, people that giftedness. started things that they had the tenacity and the range
2: well, think of, and the con- commitment. Think of Doug. Like my wife was telling me this yeah. the other day. Um, I think it was Becca. Becca needed to go to college, and Doug didn't know where to send her, yeah. so he started so he a started college. he started
0: the NSA. He Elon Musk, right. Musked it.
2: Yeah, he, <laughs> and, and, and the thing is,
1: a lot of Most these Most of guys, us are not going
2: to be
0: able to do that.
1: I think there are key lessons, though, that we can, we can take away because— you know, a lot of these examples that you're bringing up, the, the common factor is that they were willing to go for it yeah. before they were ready. Before they had mastery, they went for it. That's how you gain mastery, by the way, is you do things before you have mastery and then you gain it over time. So when I'm thinking about this question, I think one key element that is worth noting about like how, what do you do practically is you actually have to start with the worship. Because there is, you know, I got a guy on Facebook today. He was, I had listed like, hey, do you want to fight ancient malevolent spirits? And do you want to pursue, you know, take one more step towards wild glory and, you know, do all these things. (laughs) Well, then here's what you should do. You should love your wife. You should raise your kids. And one of the things I said is you should go to church. And he was like, what is paying to have somebody read the Bible out loud to me to have to do with anything? Well, if that's your understanding of worship. you Yeah, I was like, first of all, you're an arrogant jerk. And I have no, I'm not even going to answer you. I'm going to act like you don't exist because you're not teachable clearly. But I think what, what that sort of asinine, arrogant statement reveals is that you have no idea how anything changes ever, which is that it always changes from the worship on outward.
2: Yeah. And and that's the picture we get, right? The temple, the temple, the garden of Eden, the the water's flowing out. You have to start by, so this is why we
1: tell guys all the time. I think we've all told people this. Um, is that you can't just by yourself do this. One of the reasons is because like, let's say that you're not the pastor of the church, you're at a church, you can't reform their worship. You, you, you can't by yourself. If you've been there for 15 years waiting for reform and asking the pastor like, hey, can we stop singing Hillsong? Can we stop being pragmatists? Can we like reform our worship? And they're like, you know, we'll, we'll think about it. We'll read your book, but they're not really
2: going to do anything. It's like, sometimes you actually do have to go and join another community. Well, and I, I was even reading a book recently and they said, you know, worship is central. It's important. Would agree with most of the stuff in this show. Probably the, the author would. Yeah. Um, but, it, and then it said like, if you don't have a good church near you, you you're called to start one. And I was yeah, like, no, uh-uh. that is fundamentally uh-uh. flawed. No,
1: there's too many guys. In fact, we, we, we've had people even show up at our church and Utah's a church planting graveyard. So people come there and be like, I'm here to plant a church in Utah. Can you help us out? And a lot of the time we tell them, don't do it. We're like, you're not sent. You're not ordained. You're not, you don't know what you're doing. And even the way that I became a pastor that this, you know, the story of our church happened. It's God's grace that this church still exists because it wasn't done the the, the way that we would do it in wisdom now, I think. But it's like, if you want to reform, you have to start with gang of men who are all aiming in the same direction. You have to get the gang of men and you have to reform the worship. So you actually have to have a church at the center. The church is at the
2: center. And I I think practically, and this is, yeah, roundabout. I didn't answer your question directly, Dan, but. Actually, you did. That's what I was looking yeah, for. The fundamental answer for me was I had to make sacrifices. Uh, Utah was not my first pick geog- geographically. It, it is, it's expensive. Um, it was, you know, it's costly to move, all those things. It's a hassle, whatever. It's an
0: inconvenient place to live. It's inconvenient. Yeah. It's very Highly. inconvenient.
2: But I think it's fundamental that guys understand like, I was reading post mill books and I saw a lot of guys who agree with those books that, but then like, they're not living any of it. And then I said to myself, like, I'm just going to have to make some really crazy quote unquote crazy decisions. Yeah. Like we're packing our bags and moving. Yeah. Coming on. Because we love Christendom and and I want to see that my generations, you know, to a thousand of them, I pray, you know, pray for that every night that God would extend to a thousand generations through my children. But if I want that, it starts with where do I go worship with God's people? Yeah. Do they hold that vision? So that was what I would ask guys is like, okay, they're like, oh yeah, our vision is for Christendom and, 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 you know, but then I say your church, does your church even want that? Do, do your mm. elders even want that? Cause yeah. you know, so often it's like the people that you claim to be pursuing this vision with, they don't even believe in that vision. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And one of the dishes that we can fall into is people that mentally assent to these, yeah, everything you say, amen. Yeah, that's great. And then they rail on whatever the social issue is at the time, whether it's CRT or um, race stuff or whatever it is at the moment. And then you, you ask, you ask the question, what you asked, what are you building? Yeah. What are you doing to actually build? You know, like the, the old saying is, uh, is that, uh, uh, you can look at a healthy culture and there exists old men that plant trees. They will never feel the shade of, Yeah, you know? And so what are you doing to actually build instead of just talk about it. It,
1: What's the fruit? It's like people actually visit Ogden occasionally to try and move here. And some of them are kind of thrown off because they think that they're going to come here and find that what we're doing all the time is talking about Calvinism, post-millennialism, critical race theory, or feminism. And like a lot of the time, what we're actually doing is like, we're playing Frisbee. We're joking around together. We're hanging out. We're grilling. We're making meat. We're starting businesses. We're talking with Ben Garrett about Boniface woodworking and product ideas and like how we can you know, what we're doing is most of the time, like those are enemies. Those are wolves and foxes that we're going to keep out. We're going to, we're going to identify them well, teach well in our theological times. But a lot of our life is actually like the theological and cultural life of the church isn't built around just being culture warriors against the enemies of the day. It's actually about being Christians in the vocations that God has given us. And we're also all busy guys. We're busy. Like, that's the thing. We're People come over, you know, they visit the church and it's like, come over for dinner. Let's hang out. Let's talk about what are you doing? Like what, what skills do you have? Like, are you an engineer? Are you, what are you good at? You know what? You could, you could really meet a human need. Like that's what vocation is. That's what the economic sphere really is, is you loving your neighbor, meeting a real human need, solving a real human problem, being the, 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 the. Workers worthy of his wage being properly compensated for it. And everybody is blessed by your economic activity because people are a resource, not a resource sucker. So it's like people come here and they expect sometimes for us to be all obsessed about theology all the time. I think people visit Moscow and they think the same thing. And then they go there and it's like, what are they doing? Dinner. They're like, they're, 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 they're doing really good dinner. They're, they're being really good friends. Like they're just being human beings the way that God made humanity to function because they're Christians. So we're uh, we're here we're we're pretty deep into this episode at this point point. and let let me tie it up like this I think because we've we've uh, at the beginning of this this show we said that this theological maximalism and legacy minded cultural maximalism lives and swims in the stream of reformed Catholicity. And so what I'm going to do is just give you an idea of what we mean by that. We've talked about it a little bit in the last show, but we really deeply believe that the things we're describing are fruit that grows on a certain kind of tree and nowhere else. And that that tree is reformed Catholicity. So what we mean by that, I'll give you three things and we'll end it here is that reformed Catholics are Protestant, meaning we're not Roman Catholic. We believe that there are errors in the Roman Catholic church. We're Protestants, okay? We believe that the Christendom that we're talking about is going to be a Protestant Christendom, right? It's going to be built on that, in fact, all of the fruit that we're talking about grows best on a Puritan, Reformed, Catholic sort of tree, right? So we're Protestants. Reformed Catholics are historically rooted meaning that we actually see ourselves as part of the great stream of church history, not atomistic individuals. So when we say Catholic, we mean that. We're part of the universal church. We Like the reformers, we're not aiming to start a new thing. We're actually aiming to just go back to the old ways. And the only reason there is a reformed church is because the Roman Catholic Church refused to submit to scripture, right? They said no. So we are historically rooted. And finally, reformed Catholics are not Schismatics, and this is very important for the cultural vision that we're building, because what we're saying is that we can partner, build fellowship, feast, and fight side by side with lots of brothers and sisters in this great stream of Reformed Christendom across all sorts of disagreement. So there's going to be like in this new Christendom that we believe the Lord will build, and that we're aiming to to put up a few bricks in ourselves is a Reformed Catholic Catholicism that's going to be built up of Lots of different types of bricks. There's going to be Reformed Baptists in there. There's going to be Presbyterians of all sorts of stripe. Some of them are going to be E. Peers, you know. Side eyeing everybody singing to him. Some of them are going to be like, yeah, no, we're okay with hymns. Some of them are going to be, you know, some Anglican leaning sort of people. Some of them are going to be like, yeah, we're a little Theopolitan. Like we, we like uh, that, that, that James Jordan vibe. Some of them are going to be like, James, that's crazy stuff. I don't know. Like I read his books and I think he was on a trip of some sort. And (laughs) what we're saying is that if we're to build a new Christendom, reformed Christians across lots of different streams are going to have to link arms break bread across tables and say, we confess the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of all, right? We're going to have to link arms. And so we really believe that the theological and cultural maximalism that will, in a legacy-minded way, produce this new Christendom is going to swim in the stream of and and be the outflow of this great river of reformed Catholicity. So thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, I hope that this has been helpful to you and that these episodes in general have been helpful to you if you're listening, make sure that you go and leave us a five-star review. We've got all sorts of raging feminists leaving us glowing one-star reviews all over our platform. So Go leave us five-star reviews wherever you're listening to your podcast. Head to kingshall.org, buy yourself a sweet Boniface mug, chop, chop, get a you know Boniface t-shirt, jump on our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash kingshall. If you would like to get access to all sorts of bonus shows, we do an after hour show with every episode that you can listen to. So twice the King's Hall in your life could be a reality if you join us there on Patreon. But thank you for listening in. God be with you. And remember... Winkit Quisa, Winkit He Conquers, Who Conquers Himself. So don't go out fighting and tilting at windmills before you have submitted to the Lord Jesus yourself. God bless you. See you next time.